2 Corinthians, but today um, we're going to do something a little different. If you would, turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. I want to talk to you guys a little bit about our trip, about Israel, and about the Word. Ezekiel chapter 34 is where we're going to be. And while you're turning there, I'm going to again pray for our time. God, I need you. Oh, I need you. Lord, for this next hour, as as I open the word, Lord, and speak to your people, the redeemed people of God, they don't need me. They need you. And Lord, we know that in our flesh we can do no good thing, that apart from you it is impossible to please you. And so, God, what we need is your spirit to be in this place. So, Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, that you would be our teacher, that you would bring these words to life, Lord, in the hearts of the listeners, and that, God, this wouldn't just be some history lesson for us today, but that, Lord, we would receive these as the living words of God to your church today. May they produce fruit in our life. And may we go, Lord, and be drawn closer to you, having heard them, than we were before we came. So, Lord, may your spirit mold us into your likeness, even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, again, it's, it's a privilege to be back with you guys. I have missed you guys desperately, but at the same time, I mean, it was Israel, so like, you know, I can make it two weeks, you know what I mean? Um, in fact, this time last week, we were actually, I was thinking about it as I was reading that psalm, this time last week, our group was actually in En Gedi. Um, it's the spring in the middle of the desert where David went to hide. The spring's still there, standing with our feet in the same trickle of water that David would have hid in. Um, it was just an amazing time. Um, I vastly underestimated Israel and a trip to Israel. I, I've tried to go there a few times in the past, but in the providence of God, it just hasn't worked out. And this time it did. And I'm glad it did. I got to, I'm glad that I got to go with the people that I went with. Um, I'm glad we got to go in the time that we went, the guide that we had, everything. God just really ordained it. But, but I got to say, I vastly underestimated the, the importance of a trip like that. And for whatever it, it can be worth, I just encourage you guys, if you've got to start a, a penny jar now or something like that, just trust me on this. Say, you will never read the Bible the same. You will never read the Bible the same as having gone there. And I've heard that a million times. You know, my seminary professor's like, oh, a time in Israel, you know, 10 days in Israel is like a, a year of seminary. And I was like, yeah, I know, but they're just saying that because they're trying to, you know, talk up the trip or whatever. No, it's completely true. I mean, the ability really to piece Scripture together, to be able to see these things and how things laid out, um, and, and just the information. Our tour guide was amazing. I mean, the, he was like a walking encyclopedia of biblical history. It was unbelievable what this guy knew. Um, and the time there and the information gathered, it will take us years to parse all this stuff out. And so we, we need to go again, like, soon. And so I would really encourage you guys, um, if you have the ability at all, start saving right now. It is well worth the investment. Well worth the investment. Um, and maybe Greece and Turkey next, Apostle Paul trip. That's usually on a boat. Some of you guys would dig that, right? But anyway, um, our trip in general, though, went off without a hitch except for this guy named Francis. 
Um, I don't know if you guys were tracking with the news, but we were in Israel at the same time that the Pope was in Israel, and we were in Jerusalem for like a day and a half about the same time that the Pope was there. And so Pope Francis, who's a good guy, he's the people's Pope, that's what they say, um, but um, he, he did things a little different that had major implications for our trip. He decided he didn't want to go in that it's historically referred to as the Pope Mobile, you know, the bulletproof vehicle that the Pope rides ever since the assassination attempt on the previous one. But he didn't want to do that on this trip because he wanted to uh, kind of, he's trying to be, and I like it, he's being a way more down-to-earth guy than what we've seen in the past. But the results of that was that Israel had to bring in, just in Jerusalem, they had to bring in 8,500 extra police officers into the city of Jerusalem. So when we came into Jerusalem, there were soldiers and security people nearly shoulder to shoulder. I've never seen so many machine guns in my life. It was awesome, guys. It was awesome. (laughs) Just everybody had machine guns there. It was great. But um, sorry, don't hate me. Um, Peace, peace. Anyway, um, so, uh, so this is what we did. So when we landed in Israel, right away, as soon as we got there, we found out that we didn't have the guide we were supposed to have. The guide we were supposed to have is a guy who's got years and years and years of experience. Um, you can even Google his name and stuff comes up all over the place. He's lectured in the U.S., just brilliant guy. So we were really excited to have this guy. It was a rare opportunity to have this particular guide. And this young dude shows up, his second tour ever with Pilgrim Tours, the company that we used. And I'm like, oh boy. So we're talking with him, and it turned out to be amazing. Amit was his name. Um, Amit was incredible. Just a, he was the right guy for us because he had a great sense of humor. And so we were able to, you know, jab back and forth and tease one another. We just had a great time. He was definitely the guide I needed to work with on my first time in Israel. And um, he was just a brilliant guy. But, but when we came into Jerusalem, we even saw how the Pope would be in all these different places. And so they would lock down parts of the city. And so he's there constantly up front in the bus with me on the phone, scrambling with him and our driver, who was also a amazing, and just constantly changing things. And so our schedule when we got to Jerusalem instantly went right out the window. And so it was constantly like, okay, let's see, tomorrow he's going to be in Bethlehem, so we should go here, and constantly trying to jumble around. And some of you guys were in Israel years ago when tourism was down. I assure you that is not the case in Israel right now. There were, we were playing leapfrog with tour buses all week long. There were just people everywhere, but it was great and good people. And that's a good thing. We want Israel to be thriving. So that's a good thing. Um, but we ended up having to sort of scramble around a lot. And we had this guide. It was his first time, or his, excuse me, his second tour with Pilgrim Tours. So on our second, or our first morning in Israel, and we've been on the trip now for a few days going through Galilee and the Dead Sea and some other areas. Now we're in Jerusalem where Pilgrim Tours has a headquarters there. Um, Amit, our guide, his boss comes to see me at breakfast. And he wanted to sit down and have breakfast with me and just kind of make sure that this guy's doing a good job, see if we need to change anything, if, if we're unhappy with how things were going. And his name was Abraham, Abraham, but with a V. Abraham was his name. And uh, so we're sitting there and talking with him, and I just had this incredible opportunity to be able to talk with this guy and, and found out through the course of our conversation that he's a Christian, as much of the leadership of Pilgrim Tours is. And so I had this opportunity to just talk about, man, look, we so support Israel. We, are, we had told our guide actually on day one, enough of the politically correct stuff, man. We didn't come here to hear CNN. We came here to hear it like it is. 
And so just stop. And it's amazing how they have to do that with tour guides. It's a sad thing that they have to do with a lot of people with regards to a lot of the political unrest and things going over there. Um, but with our guide, we told him right away, no politically correct. You just tell us like it is. We, got, we support you. We love you. We're with you. Talk to us. And so it was a great opportunity to hear what's going on. So I'm sitting here talking with this boss that morning, with his boss, Abraham. And I just got a chance to really just express our support for Israel, our heart for Israel, to pray with him. And this guy just had tears coming down his face as he was hearing all this stuff. It was such an opportunity to encourage this guy and pray with him. He even told me later when I got to see him again, he had gone home and told his wife and was just like, oh, this pastor prayed with me and you wouldn't believe it. And they were rejoicing in their house that this church had come and was supporting them like they were. It was an incredible opportunity. Um, And so here's what I want to share, first of all, with you guys that's really cool to know. The last time we were here and I was teaching, we were finishing 1 Corinthians. You remember? And we talked about money. You remember that? Some of you are like, yes, we remember that. Okay, so, um, so we finished. Now, if you remember at the beginning of that letter, Paul's writing them. And what is it that he says to him? He says, hey, I'm going to be sending some people up there soon. Go ahead now and gather together the offering for what? For the churches in Jerusalem that I can go ahead and bring the money to the churches to help out in the ministry. And so I talked with the elders that day after we finished here, called all the different guys here at the church and said, guys, if we take that seriously, maybe we should send an offering with us when we go to Jerusalem. So let's, what do you guys think? And everyone agreed. And so we made a a withdrawal. It was just a thousand dollars. I mean, it's significant, but not a ton. And, and took $1,000 with us, and we just had it, had it in my pocket, just let's see if we run across, if we cross paths with a church or someone that we can really bless in Israel. A church, though, a church body. And so, for example, one day we were in Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, the Jewish guides aren't allowed to lead us through the Church of the Nativity in these other places. So we had to get a Palestinian guide, because that's Palestinian-controlled territory. So we had a Palestinian Christian who led us through there, and he was amazing big old guy, and he just bullied us right to the front of the lines. He was amazing. He was awesome. And they just argue, hey, you're getting in line. And we're just like, whatever, we're here. <laughs> I mean, they, they just argue everything. It was awesome. So uh, we're all trying to be humble. Excuse us. Excuse us. To the humble side of the, you know, breaking in line at the Church of the Nativity. That's probably not good, right? Whatever. It was awesome. So I'm talking with him on the bus. And I'm like, so what's it like to be a Palestinian Christian? Because we hear about the Palestinian Arabs, and we hear about the Israeli Jews, and we hear about the conflict, but we don't hear a lot about Palestinian or Arab Christians. What's that like? And he starts to speak to me, and it was very moving. He had tears in his eyes as he was talking. And I'm sitting there thinking, maybe this is the guy that we're supposed to bless while we're over here. And so literally, I'm sitting there with the money in my hand, and I'm ready to give it to him. And I'm like, so what church are you a part of? And he goes, well, I don't really go to a church. I kind of go to different churches. And I was like, oh, that's not the guy. Poor, that wrong answer, right? But it was just like, just in that moment. And it was nothing against him. And they're in a really different cultural climate and all that. But I just knew we weren't supposed to give money to a person. We were supposed to give money to a church. I hope that makes sense. So, um, so that was the idea. So we did, didn't do it and we held on to it. So then later that night, we find out that Pilgrim Tours, which is the tour company we used, had set up a lecture with one of their founders, who is this old, old Jewish guy who's been there through everything. Jewish Christian, he's been there through all the wars, all this stuff, and he was going to put a lecture on for us that night back at the hotel if we wanted to go. And so we went, 
When we got there, just like so many things, the plans had changed, and the guy who was supposed to come wasn't able to come, but they sent someone else, an a, uh, Israeli Christian, to come speak on his behalf instead. Um, and the guy they sent was Abraham, the same guy that I had had breakfast with the day before and gotten to pray with. So we're sitting in there listening to his lecture, and he begins it, and he starts talking about the fact that he's the pastor of a church in Jerusalem. And he starts talking about what it's like to be a Christian in Israel and how in Jerusalem, it's 0.001% of the population are Christian. Just an incredible minority and about what all of that's like. And so we knew right then, that's the guy. This is who we're supposed to. So we were able to make a contribution of $1,000, which isn't a lot, but it's a lot to them, um, to be able to bless uh, Abraham and his church over there, get their contact information, and spend some time maybe in the future, put another trip together, and maybe have opportunity to go over and bless their people in some way or go to church with them. We just felt it was just an awesome opportunity to, to really bless our brothers and sisters over there. And so on behalf of the church, we made a contribution to that church. It was really cool how God worked all that together. Now, you might be sitting here, and you're thinking about this, and, and you've heard a lot of news, you've heard debates, you've heard all kinds of different things, and maybe you would ask yourself, okay, so why is that important? Why should we support Israel like that? And, and Jeff, you, you were talking on behalf of the church about Heritage's support for Israel and the fact that we, we kind of have their back, if you will, that we're praying for them, that we understand them. Politically correctness out the window, we support Israel, but why is all that so important? And there's a lot of different narratives going on with regards to the conflicts that go on over there right now. There's even pastors that I love and respect and learn greatly from that would say today that Israel has forfeited its divine right to the land there because of their rebellion against God and their rejection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. And they would point back even to the, the Babylonian captivities and the Assyrian captivities to show that this has always been God's program, and so we shouldn't be surprised that that's the way it is right now. Well, there's some, definitely some valid things to think through with regards to that we're going to today. But should we, as a church, support Israel? Because I actually believe that when you look at Israel's history and the captivity and then brought back to the land and then captivity and then brought back to the land and then persecution and then brought back to the land and you see what God's done with the people of Israel historically, what it actually does is serve to completely or just to, to better paint the grand narrative of the fact that God is working sovereignly through the people of Israel even in ways that they don't yet realize because of the veil that's over their eyes. I mean, just, there, there's lots of different reasons. This is by no means a complete list, but just really quickly, I'll give you six reasons why we should support, pray for, love on the people of Israel. Just really quickly, and then we'll get on to this Ezekiel 34 passage. Number one, no nation on earth has been persecuted the way Israel has historically. No nation has been through the, and I'm not talking about like one time, like just the Holocaust or something like that. I'm talking about the grand narrative of their history is one of constant persecution of multiple times when different entities have attempted to wipe their memory off the face of the earth. And just the idea that we're Christians in general and that we're called to have answers for suffering, that we're called to meet people in difficulty, to stand up for those who are weak, just that fact alone should cause our hearts as Christians to be drawn to the Jewish people in what they deal with. Number two, God promised the land of Israel to Abraham and his descendants onward. This is a promise God made in the, the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 34, the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, 
I will give it to your offspring. Now, when God promised the land to Israel at that time, he hadn't even given them the terms of the covenant yet. Abraham had not even understood his covenant with God and his responsibility. It was completely based on grace. He said, Abraham, you are blessed. This is the land I'm going to give you. No terms, conditions, none of those things. And so to think then that Israel's failure to uphold the terms of their covenant with God would, would cause a, a covenant that God made with them years previous to that to be, that just doesn't even make sense. It was never based on covenant. It was always based on grace. Number three, or excuse me, number four, yeah, three. God promises in Genesis 12 to bless those who bless Israel and that he will curse those who curse Israel. You guys know this well. It was in that promise in Genesis 12 where he says, I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you will all families of the earth be blessed. So that's a pretty good reason to to want to bless the people of Israel. Do we want God to bless us? Say yes. I know there's some jet lag people still out there, but do we want God to bless us? Yeah, so that's a pretty good reason alone right there that we should be a blessing to the people of Israel. Number four, our Christian heritage is inescapably tied to the land of Israel. You just can't unwind those two, right? It's impossible to separate the heritage that we as Christians have from the history of the people in Israel. You can't possibly do that. I mean, Jesus was undeniably Jewish in every way. The lineage of the house of Abraham, that is the line through which God has blessed the people of the earth, that God brought the Messiah. The scriptures say that we have been grafted in to that same lineage and that same heritage. And we, we actually learned something pretty interesting when we were there. Um, Our guide asked us, what does the name Jerusalem mean? And we, almost all of us who who knew anyway, we all answered house of peace. That's what most of us have learned Jerusalem means. And and that's sort of true, but he said, actually, um, Jews over there, they, they don't translate it quite the same way. They do it a little bit differently. And I thought this was really cool. The name Jerusalem is made up of two different words. It's Yerusha and Salem. Now, Salem means peace. It also can be translated wholeness or completeness. So this is tied in with the Jewish understanding of shalom. Uh, Peace to the Jewish people doesn't just mean there's no war. Peace means a complete experience of peace and community. So peace between us and God, peace between us and our neighbors, peace between us and one another, peace between us and creation. So that's what the Jewish people refer to as shalom, wholeness or completeness. So the name Jerusalem, the second part of that, Salem, Salem, means peace or wholeness. But the first part, Yerusha, we translate house, which is not wrong, but, but a more specific or a more accurate translation that the Jewish people there use, they actually translate that heritage, which I thought was cool on a couple of levels, I'll be honest. It is our name, right? Just one more reason that we have a rad name here, right? Number two, though, isn't it the truth that we have access to peace with God through the heritage that came through Abraham's line? I mean, is that not the story of our salvation? That is because the heritage of the the people of Israel and Jesus Christ specifically, that through his sacrifice, we have access to peace with God that we would not have in any other way. So we can't separate out our heritage from that of the, Jew, of the Jewish people. And so we should, to some degree, want to honor and respect and pray for them as well. Number five, God is still the God of Israel. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but boy, we could. 
There's a, a theology out there, it's referred to as replacement theology. And it teaches that God worked through the people of Israel, but then when they rejected the Messiah, God's program with Israel ended, and all of the promises that he made to Israel now shift to the church. And then now God is working through the church. He's washed his hands, if you will, of the people of Israel. That's all done, and he only works through us. Um, we do not subscribe to that belief here whatsoever. We do believe that in this particular time, the people of Israel have a veil over their eyes, if you will, that the scriptures say, and that God is working through the church right now as the vessel of the gospel in the world around us. But God has not ended his work with Israel. He has not now abdicated, or I should say, taken away the promises he made to Israel and given them to the church based on them. I mean, if you understand even the, the, the theme of grace throughout the Bible, that's a problematic theology to hold on to because it's based on works. But it was never that way. What the scriptures do say is that God is still done. In fact, even in, in Romans 3, it says, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. He doesn't say instead of, also. God is not bailed on the Jewish people. God is still the God of Israel and the God of the Gentiles, which leads us to the last one, that God still has a redemptive plan for Israel. Um, we don't have, again, a ton of time to spend on this. I got a lot to share with you guys still, so we won't do it, but you could go back to Romans 11 and the teaching that we did about a year and a half ago when we looked at Israel and the gospel and how all these things play together. But there he says, the Lord has the power to graft them in again, speaking of the Jews. And he says to us, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There's still work to be done in Israel. God still has a plan for the people of Israel. He has not bailed on them. And because God is still working in them, and because they are part of the future of the kingdom of God here, we as part of the kingdom of God should place a certain level of importance of what goes on in the nation of Israel. They're our brothers. They will be. Now, when they realize who Jesus is, absolutely. But they're still part of the kingdom of God. They will be part of God's plan. And everywhere you go, when you're in Israel. This was amazing. Our guide said early on, he said, guys, everything you see when you're here is a miracle. Everything you see when you're in Israel is a miracle that it's still there. Everything. And everywhere you go, you see these little testimonies over and over and over and over of how God has miraculously, with his right hand, upheld this tiny little nation the size of New Jersey, surrounded and incredibly outnumbered by enemies everywhere. But it's unbelievable how God has upheld them, going to places and seeing bullet holes in buildings and realizing how close they came to being wiped off the face of the earth. And I'm talking about all of Jewish history. You can go back Egypt in the book of Exodus, the Canaanites in Joshua, the Philistines in Samuel, the Assyrians and the Babylonians during the captivity periods where the prophets are speaking to them. Uh, the Greeks under Alexander the Great, the Maccabean Revolt. Um, Herod the Great and his heavy hand on Israel. There's the Romans during Jesus' time and Titus' invasion that I'm going to share with you guys about here in a minute. 
Uh, it goes on even from there. You have the Muslims in the Middle Ages, the Turks in the Ottoman Empire. There were the Crusades, then the Muslims again. Then there was British occupation and colonialization there. The Nazis and the Holocaust, the Arab War of 1948, the Six-Day War in 1967, the Yom Kippur War in 1973. I mean, just example after example after example of absolute miracles that this nation even exists. And, and without that nation, by the way, all of these biblical sites that we go to would have been destroyed. The Muslim people would have wiped them off of the face of the earth. And we, I mean, we saw and heard stories. He even took us, having a young guide had its perks. We could talk him into things that the other guides don't do. And so he took us up to the Golan Heights, very disputed piece of property, to the border about a mile away where we were overlooking the border with Syria, where there is a gnarly civil war going on. And there were like tanks and or, or Hummers with big guns on top and soldiers with guns, just guns everywhere. It was awesome. But um, just being a safe, totally safe place where we were, but to be able to see with our own eyes the places where this stuff is going down. And I mentioned even the Yom Kippur War. That, that, was, that actually happened where the Arabs attacked the Jewish people on their holiest day, knowing that all of them would be at the temple or the synagogues and all, you know, all this stuff, and, and that they wouldn't no one would be ready for war. And they told us stories of how the soldiers were picked up in buses, jumped into buses, were driven to their tanks with their prayer shawls still on, not in uniform, wearing prayer shawls from the Yom Kippur, and that some of the guys jumped into tanks, turned the gun, and hit fire without driving anywhere because the enemy had come so close to where Israel was at that time. And yet God just spared them over and over again. And I tell you guys, we got to visit one such story in person. Just an amazing story that seems like it has this really dark ending, but it was a fascinating story that I think some of you guys are aware of on the first half of this. Maybe not, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. And it has to do here with Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus 34, this is called the prophecy against the shepherds. I'm sorry, I say Exodus, Ezekiel. Stay where you are, don't, don't go back. Jet lag, jet lag. We just got back Friday night, we're still messed up. And I, we weren't that sharp to begin with. So uh, Ezekiel 34. Now this is the prophecy of the shepherds, prophecy against the shepherds. Now Israel is in one of the darkest periods of its history at this time. At this particular time, Israel has gone through a vicious civil war, and they've split into two countries, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel was taken off into captivity by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was taken off into captivity by the Babylonians. This is to who Ezekiel writes. And in this story, the prophets during this dark season uh, are there. They serve to speak to the people of God on a couple of different levels. Number one, they want to speak to the people of God and say, look, this is why this is happening. You were called, go all the way back to Deuteronomy 29, and God says to them, if you will follow me, I will be your God. If you will heed my words, keep your covenant, you will be blessed more than all nations of the earth. And Deuteronomy 29 has these incredible blessings that God promised to the people of Israel. But also, in Deuteronomy 29, he says, but if you do not heed this covenant, 
If you turn your back on me, if you return again to the idolatry that you've been in, if you turn away, if you turn your back on me, then you will be cursed. And there's this just really devastating and sad description of what the people of Israel would go through if they turned their back on God. They would be scattered, they would be carried away, it's all right there. And so in this time that Ezekiel writes, Israel is living in the period, basically reaping the rewards, if you will, of their idolatry. We were in one place called Dan where we saw with our own eyes, it's still there from the days of Ahab, uh, altars where they worshiped false gods right there in God's land, right in Israel. Golden calves. I mean, of all the things you worship, you would think that would be one, we just won't make calves. Make a golden squirrel. Worship that. But golden calves, are you serious? And yet that's, that's what they did. And so Israel turns its back on God. And they endure judgment, and they're carried off into captivity. And so the prophets come in to say, this is why this is happening, which is the first part of what we're about to read. But the prophets don't just come on the scene, as a lot of people think, to just stand there and say, you're wrong, you're messed up, judgment, judgment, judgment. That's what so many people think of. But when you really read these stories, what you see is that they're also reminding the people of God about who they are. You are the children of God. And God's promises, in spite of your rebellion, are still true. And he's calling the people of Israel back to him through the prophets. So with that in mind, I want you to think about this. Israel's been carried off into captivity. From their perspective, never to see their land again. And God speaks through this prophet in Ezekiel 34 and says this. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. Remember, even in the original promise to Abraham, God speaks to them and he said to them, through you will all the nations of the world be blessed. And and much of the judgment that Israel experiences is because they were not the gracious caring, loving hand of God to the people around them. They got puffed up. We're the special ones. We're the chosen ones. Look how awesome we are. And they began to look inward instead of looking outward. Instead of being a vessel through which all of God's mercy flowed to the world around them, they isolated themselves from others and they became the special ones. And they built their own kingdom instead of serving others. And this is what he's talking about. You, you've, you're, you're like shepherds that are you're just feeding yourselves. You're not taking care of the sheep that I've given you. And he says in verse 5, so they were scattered. Because there was no shepherd, they became food for wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. And they wandered over the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, Hear the word of the Lord. 
as I live, declares the Lord God. Wouldn't you be afraid if you're hearing this in that moment? Remember that when your dad would say that? As I live, son, I'm telling you. Like this would be scary, right? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely, because my sheep have become prey, my sheep have become food for the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, the shepherds have fed themselves, they have not fed my sheep, so therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand. I will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And now listen to what he says. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek after my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will rescue them from the people and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. On rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak." And guys, all of these things came to pass. Israel was scattered in captivity. They weren't even a a unified nation when they were taken into captivity. And yet you read Nehemiah, read Ezra, and you see this miraculous provision made by God. Why in the world would a king who's holding a people in captivity just suddenly make a declaration to let them go rebuild their city? Why would a king in control of them suddenly say, yeah, you know what, go rebuild your temple, go rebuild your land, go ahead. Why would they do that if not the Lord of Israel making good on his promises? And so as you guys know, history goes on. Ezra, Nehemiah, the city's rebuilt, Jerusalem is rebuilt, and they become a nation again. And they never made those mistakes ever, ever again, praise God, right? <clears throat> As many prophecies that are written, as you guys know, these things aren't written only to them. They're written even to us in our day, are they not? And so fast forward to Jesus' day. What is the things that Jesus has to say to the priests, to the shepherds of Israel? You're like whitewashed tombs. You're the people who are all about yourselves. You, you, you build yourselves up. You puff yourselves up with pride. You Even when you go to pray, you pray out loud to get all the attention for yourself. He's constantly, Jesus' ministry is filled with condemnation against the shepherds of Israel for really doing the exact same things that he called out Israel for here in Ezekiel. And so there's the story that you guys may know really well. In Luke 21, it says in Luke 21 that while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the day will come when there will not be one stone left on another. All will be thrown down. You guys know that story? 
They're walking in the shadow of the temple, referred to as Herod's temple, and all of its grandeur, all of its glory, and everyone's pointing at it. Isn't it amazing? Look what we have here in Israel. Look at this. And Jesus is like, really? You guys are really caught up in this? That's, you, you think that's awesome? Then I have bad news. Because not one stone on that temple is going to remain on top of one another. Well, while we were in Israel, we got to visit the Temple Mount. Can you put the first slide up for us? While we were in Israel, we visited the Temple Mount. And this picture right here, it's kind of hard to see, I think, maybe in the light. But right here, as you guys see, this is the main walkway. Um, can we, like, turn the stage lights on like we did during worship and kill these lights so everybody can see? This is a main street. The wall that you see on the right is the, the wall of the Temple Mount. It's referred to as the Western Wall. Just over the little hill right there is the, the section that's referred to as the Wailing Wall. Um, we found out while we were there that's actually an insult to the Jewish people because that to them is foreigners saying, oh, look at the Jews, how they wail and mourn at this wall. They refer to it as the Western Wall because this is the Western Wall of the Temple Mount. And if you see right here on the right, that's the wall of the temple. This right here, the flat area right there, that's one of the main streets. It was one of the main streets in the entire city of Jerusalem. No question, Jesus Christ himself walked on that road right there. Main street. To your left, you can even see little shops and stores there on the side. But you see this giant pile of rubble right here? You know what that is? That's the remains of the Roman invasion. To this day, the remains, the rubble from when the Romans came in in A.D. 70 and destroyed the Temple Mount and drove the Jews out of Jerusalem. They pushed over all of the temple walls, destroyed the entire thing, and the rubble is still there to this day. You can see it, that Jesus' words were true. Not one stone is going to be left on top of another because the shepherds of Israel were failing in their calling. That's a sad story, right? Devastating story. Awesome to be able to see how Scripture actually comes alive and is real, but sad story for the people of Israel, is it not? Well, this is where Paul Harvey kicks in, those of you that remember him, and he says, let me tell you some of the rest of the story. As you guys know, this happened in A.D. 70 when a Roman emperor named Titus invaded. And he killed almost all the Jews in Jerusalem. Those who survived scattered. He was an incredibly bloodthirsty man. In fact, for his brother's birthday, he wanted to put on a show. And so he went to Caesarea on the coast. We went there ourselves. We stood in, this, in the, the arena, if you will. It's called the Hippodrome. It was there, if you think of the movie Gladiator, things like that. Our guide even told us the ground that we were standing on, he was talking about how blood-soaked it is. And for Titus's brother's birthday, he wanted to put on a show. So in one day, he took 2,500 Jews and fed them to wild animals in front of an audience in that very arena that we stood in. A wicked, wicked man. So the invasion happens, and again, just like is mentioned here in Ezekiel, the sheep are scattered. And, but there's this one remnant of people it's referred to as the zealots. And the zealots ran and sought shelter in the land down near the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea, as you guys know, lowest place on earth, really salty water. People go there now to vacation. It's like a resort area. Um, but that's not what it was before. And at that time, Herod had built this incredible palace on top of this mountain. Some of you may have heard of it before. It's called Masada. Have some of you guys heard of Masada before? A few of you? I can't actually see most of you anyway. I'm going to assume tons of hands went up. So Masada. 
Um, put, put a picture up, if you would, the first picture of Masada. Okay, this is a computer rendering that kind of recreates the area of Masada. Now, Herod the Great, you guys may know him. He was the one who killed all the babies in Bethlehem when he was trying to prevent Messiah from coming. Interestingly enough, Herod himself was an Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau. Those of you that want to do so, read the next chapter in Ezekiel, chapter 35. There's a prophecy against the Idumeans that God's going to deal with them and wipe them out too. Not a lot of Idumeans on the scene anymore. Really cool to see how that played out, but you can do that on your own. This right here is the mountain fortress that Herod built. Not only was he a tyrant, he had made a lot of enemies, and so he was scared to death, and he was always afraid that especially the Egyptians were going to come after him. So he built this massive city on top of this huge hill, had slaves and others come in, and our guide would say, schlepped the rocks to the top of the mountain. That was the word for the trip. He said schlepped like every other sentence. But um, schlepped these stones and built this incredible city on top of a hill, this palace. But it was his fortress because he wanted this place to be available so that if he ever had to run from an enemy, he could run there, go to the top of the hill, and hide. So this is what it would have looked like. Go to the next slide. This is what it looks like today. So here you can see the top of it, and it's just kind of rubble. There's still walls, remnants of the wall, remnants of the cities on the hill, and up on top, um, but it's obviously not what it used to be. And our tour got the opportunity to go there to the city of Masada. The altitude at the top of this mountain is only 190 feet above sea level. And you think, well, that's hardly a mountain fortress, 190 feet above sea level. Yeah, but you got to remember the Dead Sea, which is right there. This is on the base of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth. It's minus 1,388 feet below sea level. So the height of this mountain, if you took the two table rocks and put them on top of one another, you're getting close. Okay, so we went up there, and you, we didn't have to hike it, praise God. They have a cable car. Go to the next picture, if you would, please. So we rode this cable car from the base down there all the way up to the top of it like good tourists. It was awesome. There were people hiking. They're stupid. So we got up there. It was so hot, man. It was so hot. So we get to the top of Masada. Go to the next slide. You can see the walkway. Just incredible, beautiful place that they've built this. Here's some of our people. That's Carl, I think, right there, schlepping a backpack, walking along the thing going up there so that we could go tour this absolutely amazing place. It's just the rock fortress. One more slide. Go to the next one. Just incredible, beautiful, amazing place, right? One of the most visited sites in all of Israel. So here's an amazing part of the story that goes on right here. This group of zealots, this remnant of Israel, when Titus invades in AD 70, they need a place to go hide. Herod had long been out of the picture. This particular fortress was only held by a few people. So the zealots run to the Dead Sea, climb this mountain, take over the guards that are there, and now they're holding themselves up in the very place that Herod, their enemy, had designed to protect him. Just an amazing thing how God works and preserves, right? And so they hide out up here for up to three years, they're holed up. Now Titus and the Romans know that they're there, and eventually the Romans come looking for them. So go to the next slide. You can see here at the bottom of the picture, oh, I have a laser I can play with. Let's do this. So you can see here, bam, see this right here? This is a Roman uh, uh, camp for their military right here that they built up at the bottom of the city. It's right over here for those of you guys on this side. Okay, there's a zoom picture. Zoom in one more. I feel like such a tourist. Okay. See this right here? You can see the outer walls of the city. There's remnants of houses. 
And there's like four or five of these around the mountain. So what happened is, is Titus's people came, knew that the, Jewish, the Jews, the zealots, are hiding on the mountain, so they surround the mountain. And what they ended up doing is they started building, as amazing and insane as it sounds, they built a ramp to the top of this mountain. It's still there. Turn the page, if you would, next picture. It's hard to see this, but this right here, you see this trail? That's a big mountainous slope that came all the way up to the gates of Masada that the Romans built. It took them years to do it. And the Jewish people up on top, they had boulders, these big cannonballs. They would throw stuff down on them trying to stop the Romans from making access to it. And then the Romans changed. They said, well, we'll go get Jewish slaves. We'll bring them in, have them build the ramp. Then they won't throw stones because they're not going to kill these Jewish people. Sadly, they were wrong. But over time, the ramp was completed. And the Romans brought in this huge battering ram and flames and everything. And it was just a matter of time before they came in. And so one of the most horrific and saddest things that you'll ever hear is that the leader of the Jewish people there, Eleazar, was the leader of the zealots. He made an impassioned plea and speech to the people that was preserved and found years later on the mountain. They had a decision to make. We either become slaves, and we've done that before, and we know what that looks like according to the Roman people, or we die. Those are our options. But we're not going to be able to stay here much longer. And so he said this to the people, since we long ago resolved to never be servants to the Romans, nor to any other than to God himself, who alone is the true and just Lord of all men. The time is now come that obliges us to make that resolution true in practice. We were the very first that revolted and we will be the last to fight against them. And I cannot but esteem it as a favor that God has granted to us that it is still in our power to die bravely and in a state of freedom. And it sounds like an impassioned speech, but you know what that was? That was a speech to tell them that this is what we need to do. We're going to take our own lives. We're not going to die at the hand of Romans. We're not going to let them take our women and our children and force them into slavery and rape and all these things. And so they actually found, go to the next slide if you would please, See these pieces? Archaeologists discovered all of these pieces of shattered clay pots that the Jewish people had written names on them. And they cast lots. And they decided from then, this person will kill this family. This person will kill this family. All the way down to who are the last two people that will be left, he will kill them, and this last guy is going to have to kill himself. And they chose in that moment not to be slaves to the Romans, but to die in their, the way that they viewed it, in bravery. And the amazing thing is, because of this location in the terrain, it's been preserved immaculately. There's still paintings on the walls, paintings in Herod's bathing room, still on the walls there. And so they found these shards, and this incri- they found locks of hair from little girls, shoes, I mean, everything was still there. It's still, we saw it in the Museum of Israel the next day. It's still there, still preserved to show what had happened. But here's the amazing thing. You say, well, what kind of story is that, man? So you're telling us they all died? Yeah. There was a couple of women and children who had hid when these decisions were made. They were captured and carried away by the Romans. Everyone else died. Suicide pact on top of the mountain. Let's pray. <laughs> It's like a lame ending, Jeff. I thought there was like some good news to this. No, listen, so much more. 
Because archaeologists didn't just find this stuff. Archaeologists found a room there on the mountain. It was one of Herod's rooms. I mean, he, he had bathhouses and all this stuff. Um, and, but one of the rooms they converted to a synagogue so that they could worship God while they were still up there. And inside that synagogue, inside a clay pot, they found a scroll that was, it, it still is to this day, the oldest preserved, found copy of Scripture from the book of Ezekiel that's ever been found. It's this picture right here, and there's others as well. They found two pieces of of Scripture preserved there. One, Deuteronomy, which contained Deuteronomy 29. This, the story of if you follow God, you will be blessed. Those who turn their back on God, God's call to the people of Israel. And then they found Ezekiel 37. Do you guys know Ezekiel 37? I know I turned the lights out on you, so let me just read to you what they found. Some of you know this story. But imagine, if you will, these people in this desert landscape with death certain. And this is one of the only texts of Scripture that they have to read. So for three years, they're studying this text. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, Can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And thus says the Lord of God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you. I will cause flesh to come upon you. I will cover your skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. Behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews upon them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin began to cover them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, now prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord of God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, all our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, and raise you from graves, O my people." And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves, when I raise you from graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you will live. And I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. Can you imagine reading that? You think that's an accident they found that text? You think that's just like, oh, that makes for a cool story. 
No. That's the sovereign hand of God working in his people as he has from the very beginning. When I got to talk with this particular pastor while we were there, I was speaking to Abraham and talking with him about what it's like there. Bless you. He, he was sharing with me about the experience there, and, and he, he, he talked about the fact how difficult it is to, to help the people of Israel see who they are in Christ. But, but here's what we know for sure. Look, that prophecy, the Ezekiel prophecy has two, two parts. The first part, I'm going to rebuild the bones and put flesh on them. That has already come to fruition. In 1948, Israel became a nation again. The bones came back together. It stood Flesh has wrapped it. Its muscles are, if even as we speak, the military and the strength and the organization of the Israeli people are growing. We see it there every day. That's the first part of the prophecy. But the second part of that prophecy says, but I'm going to breathe into them. The word there is ruach, it's spirit. My spirit is going to blow into them and I will cause them to live. That part hasn't happened yet, but it's coming and it's happening a little bit by little bit. Pastor Abraham was telling us, he said, the average Israeli that comes to Christ, and there's not a ton of them, but the average Israeli that comes to Christ comes to Christ on the seventh time that the gospel is presented to them, on average. And he said, you being here is one of those seven times every time you come. Every time you're at a site doing a Bible study, every time you're praying, every time you're here praying for us, that's one of those seven times. We don't know which, so we just keep speaking, and we just keep speaking. He asked that we would pray for the people of Israel. Number one, that the veil would be lifted and they would see who Jesus Christ is. And also number two, that those who have already seen who Jesus is would be bold in their testimony. Because it's a scary thing to come out in a Jewish nation in that culture. Jews, Arabs, everybody hates you when you're Christian. And so he asked that we would pray for them. But he also told a story of how there was a church that had come and they had a free day that they just wanted to serve. And so they came to his church and their church was renting this little building. It's a small church at the time. It's about 80 people now, which is huge in Israel. And he said that they just came and painted our facility for free, just painted it. He said, my landlord, very much a non-believer. And the landlord came and saw what this Christian people had done. And they, he said, why would they do this? And he said, let me tell you. And so he's been sharing the reality of Jesus Christ and how when the Spirit blows into a person, they change and they become alive. This is the essence of Christianity, not that we live, but Christ lives in us. And so these people are coming because they're choosing to do what the people of Israel were charged with doing before, being a blessing to people, serving sharing with one another, strengthening the hand of the weak, looking out for the poor and those in need. That's why they came and painted this building. He said a couple of years later, just recently actually, he was having a conversation with his landlord again and he was trying to share his faith with him again. He goes, maybe it was number seven. I didn't know, so I'm gonna just tell him. And you know what the guy said? He said, I'll tell you what, if I adopt a religion, and actually most of the Jewish people are considered secular Jews now, you should know that, that there, there's a lot of Orthodox Jews, and that actually is growing. The conflict is actually pushing people into the synagogues again in a lot of ways, but it's still largely a, uh, a secular nation, and this guy was one of those. He said, I'll tell you what, if I was to take on any other religion in the world, I would choose Christianity 
because it's the only one I've ever seen that changes people. What a great testimony to the power of the Spirit of God in God's people. That's how people get saved. It was funny, people asked, they were like, so how do you convert people here? Do you give out tracts? And he sort of laughed. God bless it. He was like, no, you know what we found? Is that first we just act kindly. We share with one another. We show love to other people. We do things for one another. And that opens up opportunity to share the gospel with our neighbors. That's how we share Jesus with others. Isn't it amazing how kind of the same here, isn't it? Kind of the same thing here. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? When he said that we're to do works before men, that we're a city on a hill, let our good works shine before men. Why? So that they might give glory to God. So that even as we strengthen the hand of the poor, as we reach out and serve one another, as we are a blessing to Israel or to our next door neighbor, we're giving testimony to the fact that the Spirit of God lives in us and breathes through us. So conclusion, why should we stand with Israel? Why should we support and pray for Israel? For the same reason that we want to stand and support everyone that doesn't have Jesus Christ. First of all, because we understand the reality of the warnings of Israel that says, this is what I've charged you to do. We should learn from these warnings and not make our faith about us. Fattening ourselves, taking in of ourselves and not reaching out to strengthen the hand of the weak and to minister to people on behalf of God that they might learn who he is. The people of Israel were judged for that. This is the call on the church as well, is it not? So we learn from these things. We stand with Israel also because we know that God is not done with her. That they play a part, absolutely. But we also stand with Israel because Israel is us. Have we not rejected and turned our back on God many times throughout our life? Have we not been our own kings at times? Have we not at times walked away from God, walked away from his word, chosen not to heed his warning, chosen not to heed his rule, done things on our own, lived our own lives, built our own kingdoms, and yet God somehow has shown us favor and grace and he saved us in spite of that. So how can we not turn and do the same, especially to the people of God's heritage? Heritage, this is what it means for us to be Christians everywhere. We are the redeemed people of God. And our understanding of the redemption and favor he has shown us must motivate us to do the same. Christians have not arrived. Christians have been sent to Israel and to America, because Medford, Oregon needs Jesus too. Medford, Oregon needs people that will stand up for their next door neighbor. Medford, Oregon needs people that will do kindness, that will show love and grace to the people around them so that people will say, why are you like this? Why would you do this for me? And you say, like our boy Abraham, oh, let me tell you, You see, I was saved. I was shown kindness. When I was weak, he was strong. We're going to see this all through Corinthians. This is what it means to be Christians. Why should the church stand for and pray and support Israel? Because we're Christians. That's why. Amen? Will you stand with me?